Good evening, if you are on the East Coast of the United States, and good morning, afternoon, e evening, wherever you are. This is Danny Haifong. Thanks for joining me on this Saturday. And I just wanted to come on briefly, probably be on for about an hour, 90 minutes or so, to respond to a few things that have happened. We've had some really successful streams on here of late. So you know the drill. Like the stream, subscribe to the channel. Please also hit the notifications bell. And of course, the best way to support my work is on patreon.com slash Danny Haifong for whatever amounts. But I'm going to continue to let people come on as we begin this Saturday with a few developments that have occurred over the last week. We have been doing a lot of work at Black Agenda Report. I've been doing a lot of work as well individually on what's been going on between Russia and Ukraine, this Russia-Ukraine crisis, conflict, whatever people want to call it. Some people call it an invasion. I tend not to like to use the same terms as the ruling class, so I do not use the term invasion. That doesn't mean that I necessarily don't think it's Russia intervening and maybe invading, quote-unquote, Ukraine, but I don't use that language because of how inflammatory and propagandistic it has been in mainstream discourse. But nonetheless, what I'll be talking about today actually does relate a lot to Ukraine. It relates a lot to Russia's ongoing military operation in Ukraine. And of course, it centers on China because so many of the most important political developments center on China. I don't focus on this just because I happen to actually enjoy talking about China because I have a deep interest in China. Both of those things are very true. But I also believe at an objective level that China, China's development, the role that China occupies in the world is actually incredibly important and cannot really be divorced from almost any phenomenon, any political development that we are seeing in the world or even just right here in the United States. We really cannot divorce China from it. So I tend to talk a lot about China and ironically or unironically, I mean, I wouldn't even call it ironically, but unfortunately, not a lot of people talk about China. So that's why I do what I do. Not a lot of people in the United States talk about China. And when they do, it is genu generally bias. It's generally follows the mainstream political discourse. It generally follows a new Cold War orientation. And so here I am. So there are a few things I want to get to. They happen to do with China, yes. One will be the recent phone call between President Xi Jinping of China and President Joe Biden of the United States. So that happened yesterday. And I'm going to go over the developments with that, what led up to that phone call, what the United States is saying about China and vice versa, and some of the details of that call. And then I'm going to talk about a story that I think is of peak interest to a lot of people, and that is the state of the U.S. dollar 
its role in the overall capitalist economy globally and how the U.S.'s and Europe's recent maneuvers, sanctions, etc. against Russia are really doing a lot of damage to the U.S. dollar and what that means geopolitically, what that means politically overall. Uh, we're going to get into that. Before I get started, uh, while you're coming in, please do like the stream. Of course, subscribe to the channel, hit the notifications bell. If you can support my work, the best way to do it is patreon.com slash Danny Haifam for whatever monthly amount. And I would very much appreciate if you were able. So with that said, I don't know what you were doing this afternoon, but one of the reasons why I was motivated to do this stream was because I helped organize an event that I have been promoting over the last few streams, which is the 21st Century Socialism, China and Latin America on the front line. That event was incredible. Dilma Rousseff's speech, if you were able to attend the webinar, was incredible. She gave a masterclass in Marxism, the relationship of Marxism to Latin America and China, the socialist friendship of many Latin American countries and China, the overall trajectory of the world situation. I mean, she did it all. She gave a whole analysis of the U.S.'s state of decline, the situation or the place of neoliberal capitalism in the U.S.'s overall decline. I mean, she just did a whole lot in her speech, and it was great. And so it was a great event. And unfortunately, on the YouTube, you will not be able to catch the translation of that. Uh, perhaps we can figure something out because it will be in Portuguese if you do listen to it on YouTube. But nonetheless, the webinar was great. We had probably upwards of 350, 400 people on the webinar. We had about 1,000 people register. And yeah, we got some traction on the YouTube as well. So it was a really great event. I do encourage you to catch the other speeches in English. It is also on YouTube at Friends of Socialist China's YouTube channel. And that's what I was doing this afternoon. It was a long webinar because Dilma Rousseff's speech was about 20, 30 minutes. And then everyone else spoke at least 10 minutes. Some people went a little bit over. And so, yeah, the webinar was almost three hours long. But we had some great speakers. We had China's ambassador to Cuba, Mahui. We had Carlos Pereira, who is the Cuban ambassador to China. Both of them gave incredible Marxist analyses of the friendship between the two countries, socialism, the overall trajectory of the world socialist movement in which they occupy. I mean, it was it was great. So I was very motivated to come on today to do this. And so here I am. So with that said, we should get started. Please keep liking the stream to help boost the viewership as I move along. I'll probably be with you until about 7, 7.30. Keep liking the stream. Subscribe to the channel if you have not yet. Of course, hit that notifications bell. And lastly, I am looking, of course, to continue to receive more and more assistance with the video work here, the channel. I am in the works with some people who have been so gracious with their time. I do want to compensate them, so help me do that. Subscribe at patreon.com slash Danny Fong. Okay. With that said, we're going to finally get started now for you all who have been so patient as I let 
the stream roll on and allow people to get in. So let's talk about this recent phone call between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. It happened yesterday. Joe Biden actually was the one to facilitate the call and it all centered around the Ukraine crisis. And so China used it as an opportunity, of course, to talk about the overall relationship between the U.S. and China, and Joe Biden obliged to whatever credit he deserves for that. But what's most important here is recognizing the events that led up to this phone call. So this is actually the second diplomatic, you could say, meeting between the two countries within the last week and a half. No, within the last week. So on March 14th, Jake Sullivan met with Yang Jiexi, who's China's top diplomat. He's in the Politburo of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China. And uh, they met in Rome, Italy. And what happened there was pretty interesting because the talks were actually between the two countries quite, I would say, and the same goes for the Biden Xi talk. The content of the conversation wasn't surprising, so to speak. Of course, you have the Russia-Ukraine crisis happening, and you also have all of the problems and issues and points of contention and uh, points of hopefully cooperation between the two countries that generally get raised in this moment that don't really change. They're kind of staples of both countries. And China, of course, has its core interests that it likes to reinforce out of a matter of principle. And so it wasn't the content of the conversation that I think was important between Sullivan and Yang Jiexi because not much concrete came out of it. But what was important was how the United States approached this conversation. And the same goes for the Biden-Xi phone call that happened yesterday. So right before this meeting happened in Rome between Sullivan and Jishi, the mainstream media and the Biden administration, Jake Sullivan himself, and also NATO's General Secretary Stoltenberg, the French General Secretary of NATO, they all came out with this rumor that China was going to supply, there was a rumor that China was going to supply military weaponry to Russia in its operation against Ukraine. There was no source backing this up. It was, quote unquote, a report, as it was constantly named. And of course, whenever you see things like a report or anonymous officials saying something, it usually just means U.S. intelligence, or it means that it's just made up out of whole cloth, regardless of where the actual source of the information is coming from. But generally, almost 99.9%, it's intelligence. It's U.S. intelligence. And so there was this deliberate move to almost arrest the talks, to sabotage the talks by placing China as a problem within the Russia-Ukraine conflict and this overall Ukraine crisis. 
And I find that quite interesting and you should too. And the reason for that is because the United States right now is doing a whole lot around the Russia-Ukraine crisis, which is creating an overall world crisis, a global crisis. The sanctions, the bans on all things Russia, the escalation militarily, these talks of a no-fly zone, you actually have the threat of global economic collapse and possibly nuclear war being discussed, not only being discussed openly, but having the policies put into place by the United States to make this happen, right? So while the U.S. and NATO are saying, oh, 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 oh no-fly zone is too much, they're not going so far. They are also facilitating this economic strangulation of Russia, which is in turn creating a scenario of strangulation for the overall economy for a lot of countries, not just Europe and the United States, but particularly Europe and the United States, right? So Joe Biden is in this, I, I feel like what his administration has been characterized by, this stagnation, being sandwiched between what we call in the mental health world a double bind. That no matter where you go, right, no matter what you feel is the preferred scenario for you, if you're an individual, each one of them leads to an outright negative. And while there are, of course, beneficiaries to any direction that you go in, right, maybe it's you, maybe it's the people you love, maybe it's whatever you say, uh, whatever, maybe it's the overall general situation for you, you still don't feel better. And that's because you're in a double bind. You don't have, you, you don't feel like you have any options. And I feel like Joe Biden's administration has been characterized by these stark limitations, right? The stark limitations to the ability to govern. So it just creates a bind, no matter how appealing a policy may look. Yeah, let's strangle Russia. Let's bring its economy to quote unquote heal, right? That's that's that Clinton kind of like thinking, which is dominant among the Biden section of the ruling class. Yeah, let's bring Russia to its knees. Oops, actually, you do that and you are actually bringing the global economy to its knees. So China, because China, the United States understands China is insulated from this. China does not have to sacrifice so much. China does not believe in unilateral economic sanctions against other countries, so it won't participate in them. China rightfully believes them to be an act of war. So China is insulated from the impacts of sanctions. Russia-China relations will continue on and get stronger because of Russia's isolation from the West. But also, China's economy is structured in its own right to be able to evade and escape the worst excesses of the global capitalist market. So while global capitalism experiences cyclical crises based on what Marx talked about, this overproduction, this underconsumption, this inherent contradiction of capitalism that you can only exploit the working class, you can only plunder so much before 
you have an excess of capital an excess of markets they and ultimately capitalists are put in a position where they have to slice the bottom they have to bottom out and that's when the crash happens and that's where the unemployment happens that's where the corporations begin to fold and monopoly the concentration of capital speeds up at a rapid pace and you have negative growth or stagnant growth right that is the inherent contradictions of capitalism that china has not experienced in this 40 plus years of neoliberal hell that we have endured over the last few generations right so china is able to because public ownership is its mainstay public ownership is its crux is its foundation china is able to restructure reorient financial investments it's able to publicly support people it's able to ensure that its economy remains on stable foundations i mean how many times did you hear over the last year that china's economy was going to collapse because of a credit crisis because of real estate is out of control and it never happens you have gordon chang every single year it seems saying china is going to collapse it's going to happen and it doesn't happen and that's because china's ability to keep the commanding heights of its economy from energy transportation telecommunications you name it land in public hands that gives it a lot of flexibility to absorb the shocks of the capitalist system and to pursue a different trajectory so while capitalist economies in 2008 were kicking people out of their homes kicking people out of their jobs china was actually reinvesting in its domestic markets to ensure that whatever losses were occurring globally would not have the same kind of effects and it worked china continued to grow it did not see this huge dip it did not see negative growth that actually continued to grow at a very fast pace so the united states knows this the united states knows that sanctions against russia will not hinder china it also understands china's elevating and rising role in the overall global economy one that is actually unthreatened by the us's decline actually china's opportunities only increase the more that the united states shows that it is nothing to offer but war and austerity so when the united states puts itself in its own kind of double bind no matter what it does no sanctions on russia sanctions on russia the effect remains the same the united states doesn't have much to offer china benefits and so the Biden administration is very concerned about this because one there's midterm elections coming up 2024 is not that far away and there are a lot of considerations here there's both how Joe Biden's administration deals with the Ukraine crisis which will be a huge part of its legacy now and there's also how Joe Biden's administration given its Indo-Pacific strategy and the America Competes Act and all of these moves to try to quote unquote contain China and level the so-called competitive playing field against the autocracies of the world. 
all of that will also be huge for Joe Biden's so-called legacy. So they are concerned. Joe Biden's camp is very concerned about China. And so what happened then? So they started a rumor about China supplying weapons, and it was fake news. So there's nothing really much else to say other than it was fake news. China reiterated its position. No, we are not supplying weapons to Russia. We are taking a position of neutrality. We are maintaining relations with both countries. We are not going to unilaterally sanction Russia for its actions. And we are going to attempt to play a role in a peace process. So the media was all over this, right? And I'm just going to share a few things before we get started. Uh, the first thing, okay, is, as I was saying before, Jake Sullivan raises concerns. Here it is. Jake Sullivan raises Russia concerns in meeting with Chinese officials. So this is exactly what I was saying. That a discussion that addressed in part Russia's invasion of Ukraine during the seven-hour meeting occurred where he warned that China would face consequences for supporting Russia. So this not only has to do with supporting Russia militarily, but it also has to do with economic support, right? Russia has sought military and economic support from China amid Ukraine's invasion. The senior administration official declined to directly address those reports. So we don't know who the senior administration official, right? So we always get these this anonymity, and that likely means it's U.S. intelligence. So we have deep concerns about China's alignment with Russia at this time, and the National Security Advisor was direct about those concerns and the potential implications and consequences of certain actions, right? So Pasaki then said Sullivan communicated that China would face significant consequences if the country provided military or other support that violates sanctions or supports the war effort. But she declined to give specific information about those consequences. So there you go. Already threats, right? That's what the United States was doing in the lead up and in the aftermath of Jake Sullivan's meeting with Yang Jiaxi already setting the tone about how the United States wants to approach China. It wants to place China in an enemy camp and to claim that it can punish China for violating U.S. sanctions, which objectively is quite impossible. And the reason why is because if we thought Russia was integrated in the global capitalist economy, China is by far more integrated. China is so integrated that the shocks that China would that the United States would incur from any kind of economic strangulation of China would be monumental and China has a socialist economy at its base it has a communist party it has nationalized industries it has things that the United States does not so China can withstand a lot right China is a world leader in a lot of different areas economically. And a lot of that is based on its own technical know-how, what it was able to garner through what it says has been this win-win cooperation 
this move toward globalization, not in the <clears throat> corporate globalization sense as we know the word, but how China sees it as mutual relationships with other countries economically that actually bring immense benefits to Chinese society. And that's what China has, which the United States is not. The United States use globalization as an opportunity to gut the economy. That's what Wall Street wanted. Wall Street wanted the United States economy to be gutted. So it said, wow, globalization is a great opportunity. After the Soviet Union, socialism is at its weakest. We're going to globalize, quote unquote, by essentially gutting the internal domestic industrial capitalist economy in the United States, send it abroad to low-wage havens where we can suppress wages and we can make super profits and thus increase the value of our investments no matter what they are. And that will be the model from which we thrive and profit as a, as a system. While China said, okay, globalization is also an opportunity for us. We're a low-wage country. We are currently making low-value-added goods. This is an opportunity to integrate and reap the technological and productive benefits of the world economy. And that's what China did. And it has been able to thus increase the standard of living by investing in Chinese society, investing in infrastructure, investing in development, and doing so on the basis of this new term that has been rolled out by the Communist Party of China, common prosperity, which I argue has always been a part of China's overall trajectory. But now there's a huge emphasis on it with the accomplishment of certain key markers and achievements like the elimination of extreme poverty. So with that said, we had this meeting occur between Jishi, Yang Jishi, and Jake Sullivan, which only worsened, I think, the tensions between the two countries. Because China really did go into it with an attitude that they wanted to address mutual concerns and hopefully come out with momentum, if not an actual concrete plan to strengthen relations between the two countries, strengthen their role in the world, get essentially a better and more stable grasp of things instead of what has been the case over the last several years, which has been this move toward quote-unquote decoupling, which under existing global conditions has significant consequences everywhere, right? It had consequences for China, both positive and negative, and mainly just negative consequences for the United States. But nonetheless, it is not beneficial for China to be in a new Cold War environment because of all the dangers that it portends. So China really wants to end that situation and uses every opportunity to try. And it usually doesn't go anywhere because the United States right now, given that it's making these kind of threats, is showing that it is not interested in diplomacy. It is not interested in a stable U.S.-China relationship. It's interested in using China as a political chip in this larger process. And China is not a chip. China cannot be bullied. And it is just a real, it's a failed philosophy. It's a failed political uh, policy. It 
is just really just a failure, right? The United States comes out just looking like a sour bully and we moved on after this conversation between Sullivan and Yang Jishi to four days later, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping coming together. So they came together and I'm going to actually put up the uh, China's kind of a call. They, they do kind of these reports on the call. And it's from a blog, Picking Knowledge, which is an interesting blog. And this is just China's readout of the Xi-Biden video call. All right. So this just summarizes what was talked about to help give us some idea of what is happening here. So the two presidents, I'm just going to start here. So they spoke on March 18th by video call. At the request of Joe Biden, the two presidents had a candidate in-depth exchange of views on U.S.-China relationship relations, the situation in Ukraine, and other issues of mutual interest. President Biden said that 50 years ago, the U.S. and China made an important choice of the Shanghai uh, issuing the Shanghai communique. 50 years on, the U.S.-China relationship has once again come to a critical time. How this relationship develops will shape the world in the 21st century. Biden reiterated that the U.S. does not seek a new Cold War with China. It does not aim to change China's system. The revitalization of its alliances is not targeted at China. The U.S. does not support Taiwan independence, and it has no intention to seek a conflict with China. So this is really interesting. Biden supposedly says that he's not for a Cold War. He's not trying to recognize, quote unquote, Taiwan independence. He's not trying to change the system. The United States is not for any of that, supposedly. Yet, everything that the United States does toward China seems to indicate the opposite. And China's foreign ministry has repeatedly said that. That the U.S.'s words are pretty hollow when the United States continues to militarize the Asia-Pacific, sending its warships, its military forces, continues to build bases in countries that surround China continues to engage in economic sabotage and warfare, continues to attempt to diplomatically isolate China, to blame China for its own problems, to make China out as the enemy in the Russia-Ukraine crisis, and actually facilitating billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions in arms sales, well, hundreds of billions, but uh, billions worth in arms sales to Taiwan, all of which seems to indicate that everything that Biden said here is not true. But to move on, the U.S. is ready to have candid dialogue and closer cooperation with China, stay committed to the one China policy and effectively manage competition and disagreements to ensure the steady growth of the relationship. So a lot of vagary here, a lot of things that you kind of have to say unless you're trying to engage in an act of diplomatic warfare. So. He said he's ready to stay in touch with President Xi to set the direction for the relationship. So President Xi noted that major developments in the international landscape since their first virtual meeting last November have changed. The prevailing trend of peace and development is facing serious challenges. The world is neither tranquil nor stable. As permanent members of the UN Security Council and the world's two leading economies, China and the U.S. must not only guide their relations forward along the right track, but also should shoulder their share of international responsibilities for and work for world peace and tranquility. Much more reasonable there, not making promises that 
obviously aren't being kept, which Joe Biden did. So President Xi stressed that he and Biden share the view that China and the U.S. need to respect each other, coexist in peace and avoid confrontation, and that the two sides should increase communication and dialogue at all levels and in all fields. President Biden has just reiterated that the U.S. does not seek a new Cold War with China to change China's system or to revitalize alliances against China, and that the U.S. does not support Taiwan independence or to seek conflict with China. I take these remarks very seriously, said Xi, which is true. He should take it seriously because, right, it's like that's your notice. You're you're saying you're going to do these things, so let's see if you do them. And I don't think there's any reservations among Xi Jinping or anyone in the Central Committee, in the Politburo, or in the National Assembly, anywhere in China's governance system that has reserve, any reservations about whether the U.S. will do these things or not. I think there's a big understanding and recent polls show even among young people in the society, there is a really a low viewpoint in China of the United States and its trustworthiness. So this is diplomacy, what we're seeing here. President Xi pointed out that the U.S.-China relationship, instead of getting out of the predicament created by a previous U.S. administration, has encountered a growing number of challenges. What's worth noting in particular is that some people in the U.S. I love I love this kind of part of the readout because this is very typical Right, because China is not trying to make waves, but they need to say that it's happening. So they usually say some people in the U.S. have sent a wrong signal to Taiwan independence forces. This is very dangerous. Mishandling of the Taiwan question will have a disruptive impact on the bilateral ties. China hopes that the U.S. will give a due attention to this issue. There are direct causes for the current situation in the China-U.S. relationship that some people on the U.S. side have not followed through on important common understandings reached by the two presidents and have not acted on President Biden's positive statements. The U.S. has perceived and miscalculated the strategic intention. President Xi underscored that there have been and will continue to be differences between China and the U.S. What matters is to keep such differences under control. A steadily growing relationship is in the interest of both sides. So here's some. So now they go into the Ukraine situation. And so there's more to this because China is not, again, this is a diplomatic readout. So they're not going over all the details, actually. I mean, this call lasted for more than a few hours. So obviously, right, this isn't the whole transcript. And so China does leave things out for the purpose of diplomacy. And here you have a very short, this is this is why having a critical eye is important, a very short summary of what President Biden said about Ukraine. He expanded on the U.S. position and expressed readiness for communication with China to prevent the situation from exacerbating. There's more that's actually a lot more harmful than that that we will get into after this. So President Xi pointed out that China does not want to see the situation in Ukraine come to where it is. China stands for peace and is opposed to war. This is embedded in China's history and culture. China makes a conclusion independently based on the merits of each matter. China advocates upholding international law and universally recognized norms of governing international relations. China adheres to the U.S. UN Charter and promotes the vision of common, comprehensive, cooperative, and sustainable security. These are the major principles that underpin China's approach to the Ukraine crisis. China has put forward a six-point initiative on the humanitarian situation in Ukraine and is ready to provide further assistance to Ukraine and other affected countries. All sides need to jointly support Russia and Ukraine in having dialogue and negotiation that will produce results and lead to peace. The U.S. and NATO should also have dialogue with Russia to address the crux of the Ukraine crisis and ease the security concerns of both Russia and Ukraine. 
So then they go into COVID-19, the economy. It takes two to tango. It takes two hands to clap, right? Ensuring that there are losses, creating conditions for peace and negotiation and to avoid a cold war. So, right, we don't need to get into any more of this. But what's important to note here is the difference between how Joe Biden and Xi Jinping talk, how the U.S. and China talks. The U.S. always talks in a vague manner that makes tepid promises, says things like, we are not seeking a new Cold War. We don't want conflict. We're not trying to change your system, right? So a lot of this is still centering around this hegemony, this imperialism, this trying to deflect from deflect claims, but not making any promises toward cooperation, toward very strict and specific policies. But you notice there when Xi Jinping gave, when the readout of what Xi Jinping said was very concrete. We adhere to international law. We adhere to those principles. We have a six-point initiative to support Ukraine. We do X, we do Y, we do Z, right? And so China calls this within its whole process democracy, the outcome-based democracy, right? So there's the process-based democracy of people participating, people deliberating, people doing things, and then how that leads to outcomes, right? So when China is talking about these high-level diplomatic negotiations, they're not just talking about here is what we're trying not to do, what we hope will happen. No, they're saying we are going to adhere to X, Y, and Z. We will do it. So that's a big difference, right? It's a big difference. People don't really recognize this. People have these jingoistic, racist understandings of China. So they think that China is just like this robotic authoritarian nightmare. But really, what you see in these readouts and diplomatic statements are affirmative statements, not written in any kind of passive tone, that are about what China will do. Because the debate, the decision making, that has been done. And now, the steps, the action steps are going to be taken. So it's a huge difference between the two and why you often see China actually being very proactive regardless of what it is, if it's international affairs, if it's in within their own country, being very proactive in making changes. So Joe Biden's participation in this call was very political. It was very much about, okay, what can we what can we get from this? What can we get from China? What can we do to assert our position over China? How can we manipulate? How can we passively avoid and evade to come out looking like we're on top? And it's just so cynical and ridiculous. But this is the state of U.S. politics in a lot of ways. And I'm going to share actually what China did not put in their readout, but I think is important because the U.S. media reported on it. Uh, and I think it's important to talk about this is what happened after. 
the call. And of course, they're not going to put this in the readout also because it didn't happen during the call. But I think during the call, there were also warnings. So here we go. Reuters says, after Biden, she called U.S. warns China it could face sanctions if it backs Russia in Ukraine. So here we go again. They're bringing up the same rumor, right, that China is going to support Russia and its military operation against Ukraine. Biden tells she China would face costs from the U.S. in wider world. And she says sanctions could trigger economic crisis and global economy. And so oh, I guess I reached my article limit. I could put this in the uh, archive, but I won't. I just wanted to say that that's that that did happen. Right. So the United States once again said that there would be consequences for China, even after this diplomatic conversation happened. Right. So there is this move politically, and it's really driven by the militarists, the hegemonists, the imperialists. It's driven by them to essentially um, paint China out to be the problem. And so I just wanted to point that out, that this is a really important part of the conversation. I also want to apologize if you can hear those car alarms. I live right next to a parking garage. <laughs> And I think the door, the window is open in the bedroom. So I don't live in a huge apartment. So anyway, this is the state of U.S. politics. It's bullyism. It's belligerence. Somebody put it. Connie Reed put it here. She said such belligerence. It's exactly what it is. This is belligerence hands down. It is about bullyism. It's about trying to gain more leverage in a situation that has a risk of deteriorating very quickly. And that is the U.S.'s role in this Russia-Ukraine conflict. We're already seeing it economically. And it only spells political problems for the Biden administration if it cannot get a handle on the overall world situation that is being affected by the Russia-Ukraine conflict in the U.S.'s decision to go full speed ahead with very damaging economic sanctions and other measures that essentially place the world economy at huge risk. And honestly, it's the world economy, the world capitalist economy, which a lot of Biden's legitimacy will rest in the final analysis because we know how shallow U.S. politics really are. And generally, in the very end, right, when it comes to who is going to win a presidential election. It's like, what is the state of the capitalist economy, right? After all of the other things are controlled for, both parties are lobbying their way and trying to get their way through donors and through political manipulation and election rigging. You're going to control for all of that because it's happening on both sides. And generally, it happens to be that the... Um, economy determines it. What happened to Donald Trump, right? In the 2020 election, Donald Trump was facing an economic crisis. He was the United States economy was still in its economic crisis, hadn't really recovered from the pandemic fallout. And then Donald Trump made the mistake really of rejecting more aid to people at the right before the election was going to be decided. He said, okay, we're not going to give further aid, right? And 
that really hurt Donald Trump. I think that was the October. Uh, that happened in October, right before the 2020 um, election happened the next month. So with that said, you know, that's what's going on between China and the U.S. You have this deliberate move by the U.S. to paint China as the problem now to scapegoat China as the problem in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, that China is going to support Russia, China is going to undermine sanctions, which I think is a very good thing. China is militarily supporting Russia, which has no basis in reality. Russia does not need, if there's anything Russia does not need, it's military support from China. Russia is quite the military power itself. It happens to be on the economic end where Russia is uh, much more limited than China in its both its options and its overall landscape internally. So China and Russia's strategic partnership really hinges on economic interests. And Russia doesn't need the United States. Russia is sending off hypersonic missiles and has the defense capacity to defend itself. It really does. And to also respond to provocations. And we're seeing it with the Ukraine crisis. And we're also seeing it in really astute analyses of what a no-fly zone would mean. Because Russia does has S-400s, man, they do. They can, they can shoot down aircraft in the air. They can shoot down missile systems up to 400 kilometers. Uh, they do not need China to do that. So with that said, we are going to talk now about the U.S. dollar. Because as I've alluded to, these economic measures, these sanctions, this act of war, is they are creating a real developing crisis that's already hurting us, right? Prices are going way up. People are already hurting from underemployment, unemployment. People are hurting from the fact that Joe Biden wants to fill the downtowns, but now gas costs 7 $8 a gallon in some places, right? So, I mean, this is a dire economic situation because when gas prices rise, it means everything rises. That was already the case, right? You had 5 6 7% rises in housing and rent and all sorts of other things. And, and that's just so crippling to working people who half of whom don't even make $30,000 on the year, which means you're at risk of homelessness and it's happening. People are being evicted. Black people are being affected the most. The pandemic has been declared over by the capitalists. And so all of the pandemic measures are gone. And not only are they gone, but also even just the restrictions of what capital could do to abuse working people have also been eliminated. So not just the material support, not just the child tax credit, which is gone, right? You had eight or so million children fall back into poverty because that tax credit is gone. And Joe Biden said, I can't do anything about it. It's all up to Congress. And Congress said, well, we're not spending any money. So in the tax credit, I mean, it's barely, it, it's ridiculous. So with that said, you know, while you're here, like the stream, like the stream, like the stream, help boost in the algorithm, help me get to 200 viewers. I'm about 184 right now. Help me get to 200, subscribe to the channel, share the stream, share it, share it, share it, hit the notifications bell so you know when I'm coming live. And please do. I'm trying to actually get some support and I want to pay people at least a little bit 
to get some support to help out with the channel. I need some help with it. So please do support my work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong for whatever amount you're able to give. You can also do annual subscriptions on Patreon. Uh, I mean, on Substack. And that's all in the description below the video. So with that said, back to the US dollar. And I'm going to actually read a few things. Not long. Both of them are very short. The first will be a report March 8th. So this has been talked about ever since these sanctions came into play. Okay. So ever since the sanctions came, sanctions came into play and the gas prices started rising in the Europe, right, is so worried, right? The whole capitalist economy is worried about the long-term effects of this. The short-term gains, great, right? There's a lot of enthusiasm <laughs> among fossil fuels, among military contractors, for these sanctions because sanction sanctioning Russia creates ample opportunities to monopolize the energy market. And also, what does the military-industrial complex rely on? Energy. So they love that these weapons systems and military aid is being increased. And of course, the military contractors love that because it's their weapons that are being sold at egregious prices to Ukraine's government, which I'm sure will help also bankrupt Ukraine, as has been the case since 2014. But nonetheless, this is March 8th, and Reuters was already reporting that uh, Credit Suisse's Pozar says commodities crisis could weaken the euro dollar and boost the yuan, which is the RMB, the currency in China. So they said that China's central bank is uniquely placed to backstop a global commodities crisis sparked by sanctions imposed in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, potentially paving the way for a much stronger yuan, a Credit Suisse investment strategist said. In a note published on Monday, Zoltan Pozar, global head of the bank's short-term interest rate strategy, said the unfolding crisis in Ukraine led to a perfect storm in commodities that could weaken the euro-dollar system, contribute to inflation in Western economies, and threaten financial stability. This crisis is not like anything we have seen since President Nixon took the U.S. dollar off gold in 1971, the end of the era of commodity-based money. When the crisis and war is over, the U.S. dollar would should be much weaker. The uh, renminbi, the RMB, much stronger, backed by a basket of commodities. Russia's invasion, the biggest attack on a European state since World War II, has nah, that's not has created 1.7 million refugees, fears of wider conflict. Okay, I, can we can we redact that? It's not the biggest attack on a European state since World War II, mainly because Europe is not. I mean, Ukraine is not considered European and whatever happened to Yugoslavia because Yugoslavia is technically in Eastern Europe and was destroyed to a much greater degree, believe it or not, but believe it because in 1999, NATO's bombing devastated tens of thousands mass. There were refugees, but it was mainly like a mass. It was a mass killing and a destruction of the society. But anyway, I digress. So the conflict has driven surges in commodity prices, including nickel prices to a record high and oil to a 14-year peak. Russia has warned a ban on Russian oil imports could jolt the cost of a barrel to $300. So that's what you have. You have Russian commodities today are like subprime collateralized debt obligations were in 2008. 
Non-Russian commodities are like U.S. Treasury secretaries back in 2008. One collapsing in price, the other surging in price, with margin calls on both regardless of which side you are on. Western central banks held back by sanctions imposed by their governments will not be able to provide support such as emergency liquidity needed to close market gaps, he said, noting that the People's Bank of China faced no such restrictions. So there you have it. They're not going to close the market gaps because, well, they don't actually say why. Oh, they say because they're held back by sanctions imposed by their own government. So there you have it. These sanctions are so counterproductive that they won't allow European European economies to relieve the situation. And that's because they're really cutting off such major parts of the global economy that this is the limitations of capitalism. It's the limitations of imperialism, really. You can only divide the world so much. You can only monopolize the world so much, the world economy so much, until you reach this limit, this end point, where now something needs to change, to transform, to reverse course. But of course, if we know anything about capitalism, it doesn't really have the capacity to reverse course. It just continues to develop as it is designed to do. It does not go backward. It does not say, okay, we need to go back to an industrialized economy. No, that's because the inherent character of the for-profit motive of the motive of private property prevents it from doing so, right? Because any reverse means that you got to give back. And that's not the principle or the design of capitalism. And that's why you see these crises continue to happen. So here you have that, you know, the US, the U.S. and European economies are not really structured to ensure that commodities can be controlled, the prices can be controlled despite the sanctions. And he said that selling U.S. treasuries to fund vessel leasing and purchases of cheap Russian commodities would help the People's Bank of China control inflation in China while leading to commodity shortages, recessions, and higher yields in Western economies. So basically what he is saying is that China will continue to economically do business with Russia. And so it can, through its own currency, bypass the limitations of the U.S. dollar by just buying the goods in RMB. I mean, it's as simple as that in so many ways, but of course, the impact of this is huge. And so the birth of the euro renminbi market in China's first real break step to break the hegemony of the euro dollar market. That's what this person is saying, that it, this would be a break in the U.S. dollar and its domination of Europe. And the inflationary trend for the West means less demand for long-term treasuries. So yeah, I mean, that's just that's just obvious, right? The higher the prices get, the less people are going to buy. The less people buy, the more that the capitalist market is glutted, overstuffed, and the more likely you're going to get an economic crisis. And so that's what you have here. You have the United States precipitating this. And I just want to say thank you to uh, Nurse Hemp. Appreciate it. Unfortunately, YouTube takes all of these super chats, I turn them on, 
they take them all for the first hundred dollars and then they take a huge percentage so if you do can divert those super chats into patreon patreon.com slash danny haifong you know even just just divide it up like one dollar a month two dollars a month it's so much better but i appreciate i appreciate all of the support nonetheless so i want to get into a few other developments with this so the move to the dollar is also being content the move to the rmb is being contemplated by saudi arabia a country that is long known as a deep partner of the united states there is multi tens of billions hundreds of billions of dollars that have been uh, transacted over there's been there have been exchanged over the years in the form of oil for weapons essentially right saudi arabia has the oil the us dollar is pegged to oil and this has been lucrative saudi arabia gives them just extreme leverage over the purchase sale and distribution of their oil their massive oil resources and the united states gets to have this monopoly on that as well you know and to control the price and to do all sorts of things and so this relationship is very very lucrative and is really at the heart of the US dollar's strength in a lot of ways. And so that's why the United States supports Saudi Arabia to the degree that it does. It literally funds and militarizes Saudi Arabia to the teeth to keep its extremely brutal regime. I mean, we're talking about a political system in Saudi Arabia, a monarchy, which beheaded 81 people in a single day within the last week or week and a half or so. So it's a brutal regime. It's nothing like a quote-unquote Western-style democracy, but it is one that is extremely important to the United States. And so you have, let me share the screen again. You have Saudi Arabia contemplating the selling of its oil to China in RMB instead of U.S. dollars. So this isn't the first time that this has been contemplated, but it really does matter, right? For all the things that I just said, it pegs its oil to the dollar. So any damage to the dollar would hurt its own, its own currency to the dollar, would hurt its own currency. But if China can supply RMB instead and buy it directly, it may be more beneficial for Saudi Arabia with its bilateral relationship with China, which isn't really said in this article but nonetheless you know this goes over a little bit about the history you hear see the composition of official ex foreign exchange reserves of course the us dollar dominates 7.1 trillion dollars of all foreign exchange foreign exchange reserves and you have euros lot less and now you just I, that's what that's you know the yuan is now fourth fifth which is significant given China's overall economic position over the last several decades, rising but still underdeveloped. But nonetheless, there is this contemplation, right, of Saudi Arabia potentially using the RMB instead of the dollar for its trade in oil to China. That would be big. Right. It says the effect on both China would be in U.S. would be profound to observe the new role of the RMB. China would have to ensure political stability and financial transparency. I mean, this is ridiculous of the kind that U.S. the U.S. promised in the 20th century. 
that's a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> I don't know if that's that's just an assumption. That's what the Western media always does. They're talking about what if the RMB replaced the dollar. That's not really on the way. But even this contemplation of Saudi Arabia potentially doing this in the bilateral relation does spell, I think, an overall trajectory of the dollar's decline. So political stability, does China have a problem with that? Not really. Financial transparency, I mean, what does that even mean, right? Does it mean that it opens its books? Like, I, I don't I don't understand that. But I don't really I don't think we should worry about it either. The U.S.'s ability to issue dollar debt and earn dollars for exports would decline. So its economy would shrink, obviously, if the dollar was replaced. In this situation, the dollar's weakening may trigger a vicious cycle. Capital flight away from the dollar and towards the RMB, debilitating the dollar further. So that's what they're worried about, this vicious cycle. And it's an important one to note in that the more that countries decide to trade in their own currencies, the more that the threat that the U.S. dollar weakens and weakens to the point where perhaps global south countries won't feel dependent upon it anymore and that would trigger not only a global economic crisis but likely would trigger the military crisis that i tend to be a little bit more concerned about i tend to think that before there is going to be really an economic transformation in the global system, world system, that there's going to be a, a massive conflict. Because if I know anything about capitalism and imperialism, is that it doesn't just bow down. So the threat to the dollar is serious in the sense that it could be the trigger for the U.S. to do the unthinkable, right? Because it's kind of like the last act of desperation of this system right? And that is on the way. And now it's not tomorrow, right? Because US dollar is still very dominant. You saw that chart. US dollar is still very dominant, but it's weakening. And I think what we're seeing is that the more that the US becomes aggressive toward Russia, toward China, the more that it actually pushes itself out of its own sphere of influence, because China has things that the U.S. can't offer. Russia has certain things that the U.S. can't offer. But really, it's China that has the stability, has the economic growth, has the technological capacity and know-how, has a financial system that isn't dominated by Wall Street, and can do things that are far more generous, far more beneficial and cooperative than the United States. So in a sense, developing countries, underdeveloped countries, global south countries, which is the vast majority of the world, even Europe would be remiss to miss out on these opportunities. And that's part of this Russia-Ukraine crisis is also about isolating China and preventing this dollar dominance from receding because China is much stronger in Europe than it ever has been. It is the top trading partner of Europe. And it has many countries, right? I think more than a uh, more than a half dozen countries in the Belt and Road Initiative. <laughs> so Europe does not want to lose access to the Chinese market nor the Russian market. But the United States, right, has such a deep control politically and economically, has such a deep influence over Europe, right? Europe is the junior partner of U.S. imperialism. And so 
hands are tied. The puppet, the puppets are being played by the puppet master. And that's what's happening. So I want to share an article by Pepe Escobar. And while I do, uh, please do like the stream, right? Because this is a really good article and you don't want to miss it. So like the stream. Please share the stream. Please subscribe to the channel. Hit the notifications bell. And I really do encourage in lieu of like super chats. Once, once, once we get, you know, through this period of YouTube taking everything, then maybe I'll encourage it a bit more. But uh, please do subscribe at whatever amount at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. That's the best way to support this channel and this work. And so, okay, I'm going to share this article because it's from Pepe Escobar, geopolitical analyst, who is very good on this particular subject, which is the fall of the U.S. dollar. And he wrote this article just a few days ago, published it a few days ago. And it's titled, Say Hello to Russian Gold and Chinese Petro Yuan. The Russia-led Eurasia Economic Union and China just agreed to design the mechanism for an independent financial and monetary system that would bypass dollar transactions. So there you have it. This, this The mechanisms are coming into place. While we're not there yet, these countries are, are moving. They're moving and shaking. They're not standing still and waiting for the United States to destroy them. That's just not going to happen. That's part of the, why this multipolar world is developing. They're not going to wait for the United States to collapse and do the unthinkable, right? These military assaults, the militarization, all of it, the sanctions, all of it is an, a deep threat to their very existence. So... Pepe says, this is a short article, so I'll probably read it in full. It says, it was a long time coming, but finally, some key alignments of the multipolar world's new foundations are being revealed. On Friday, after a video conference meeting, the Eurasian Economic Union and China agreed to design the mechanism for an independent international and financial, uh, international monetary and financial system. The EAEU consists of Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Belarus, and Armenia is establishing free trade deals with other Eurasian nations and is progressively interconnecting with the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. So a lot of these countries, Russia, Belarus, right? Two out of the five are part of the sanctions regime from the United States being targeted, right? Belarus, there was a color revolution in 2020 that the United States supported through the NED and other forces to try to overthrow Lukashenko and the government there. And it is also being targeted in this Russia-Ukraine crisis as the enemy. And so it's being economically strangled as well as Russia. You have Kazakhstan, which is also part of this overall geopolitical crisis that the United States has helped shape. That country has faced political calamity even within the last six months. We saw uh, those protests that turned violent. And of course, you have Kyrgyzstan and Armenia already in pretty weak economic conditions. So this Eurasian Economic Union makes a lot of sense. And it's led by Russia and includes hope, what they hope will be a growing sphere of East Europe and Eurasia. So for all practical purposes, the idea comes from Sergei Glaziev. Russia's foremost independent economist, a former advisor to Vladimir Putin and Minister for Integration and Macroeconomics for the Eurasia Economic Commission, the regulatory body of the EAEU. 
Glazyev's central role is devising new Russian and Eurasian economic financial strategy has been examined here. He saw Western, he saw the Western financial squeeze on Moscow coming to light, coming light years before others. Quite diplomatically, Glazyev attributed the fruition of the idea to the common challenges and risks associated with the global economic slowdown and restrictive measures against the EAEU and states and China. Translation. As China is as much a Eurasian power as Russia, they need to coordinate their strategies to bypass the unipolar U.S. system. The Eurasian system will be based on a new international currency, most probably with the yuan as reference, calculated as an index of the national currencies of the participating countries, as well as commodity prices. The first draft will be, ready to be, dis will be already discussed by the end of the month. The Eurasian system is bound to become a serious alternative to the U.S. dollar, as the EAEU may attract not only nations that have joined BRI, Kazakhstan, for instance, is a member of both, but also the leading players in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, as well as ASEAN. West Asian actors, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, will inevitably be interested. In the medium long term, the spread of the new system will translate into the weakening of the Bretton Woods system, which is even... Serious U.S. market players, strategists admit, is rotten from the inside. The U.S. dollar and imperial hegemony are facing stormy seas. So we're going to continue, but I think that's just very astute, right? This is this is a trend that we have to pay attention to. The Eurasian Economic Union, it's something that I have been following since the Obama era and the Belt and Road Initiative, right? They, they formed relatively during the same time period as Russia and China were getting closer together. They have a lot of commonalities regionally. Of course, they have different focuses, of course, right? Eurasia and China is, is not as broad as China's Belt and Road Initiative. The EAEU did not have the same kind of expansive ideas for infrastructure development, but roughly the, the aim is the same. It's about integration. It's about developing these economies which have been so underdeveloped in the post-Soviet era. It's about reducing dependency on Europe and the United States while also trying to connect to those markets. It isn't a hostile act, so to speak. A lot of it is just about strengthening economic development through trade networks and through the development of the infrastructure needed to conduct trade, whether that's railways, whether that's pipelines, right? And so we all know if you follow Pepe Escobar that he is big on the pipeline circuit. He talks about pipelinistan. He talks about how through these post-Soviet republics and Russia and China, there's a lot of pipeline activity happening to try to subvert and circumvent dependency on oil and gas from outside and to try to integrate, which makes a lot of sense, trying to integrate these resources that each country has, these economic development opportunities that each country possesses into a full-fledged global trade network. And that makes a lot of sense, right? You shouldn't have to ship, you shouldn't have to ship oil and gas from far-flung parts of the world when you have it right underneath you. You should you shouldn't have to spend all sorts of money uh, in in your trade relations with other countries when there's infrastructure that could be built 
to both shorten the time that it takes to get commodities across and certain raw materials and resources across with your own neighbors, right? And that that's that's what's been stripped from a lot of underdeveloped and post so-called colonial nations, neo-colonial nations. What's been stripped of them is the opportunity to really develop their economies in a sovereign way in league with their neighbors because they have been dominated by European, U.S. financial institutions, dominated financial institutions, and they have been dependent upon imperialism to develop their economies, which has impoverished them and led them to economic catastrophe. And so these integration networks and trade agreements, etc., do threaten the continued viability of that lab, right? This Western-dominated imperialist order. If these countries can figure it out together, then there is more of a risk for the United States that, yeah, the dollar and all these other dependencies are dropped, but the dollar being a huge one. That really, I think, brings it all together. So show me that frozen gold. Meanwhile, Russia has a serious problem to tackle. This past weekend, Finance Minister Anton Silonov, I really can't speak Russian, Silonov confirmed that half of Russia's gold and foreign reserves have been frozen by unilateral sanctions. It boggles the mind that Russia's financial experts have placed a great deal of the nation's wealth where it can be easily accessed and even confiscated by the empire of lies. At first, it was not exactly clear what he meant. How could the central bank's Elvira <laughs> Nibulina and her team let half of foreign reserves and even gold be stored in Western banks and or vaults? Or is this a sneaky diversionist tactic by Solonov? No one is better equipped to answer these questions than the, ines than the inestimable Michael Hudson, the author of the revised version of Super Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of the, Econ of the American Empire. Hudson was quite frank. When I first heard the word frozen, I thought this meant that Russia was not going to expend its precious gold reserves on supporting the ruble, trying to fight against a Soros-style raid from the West. But now the word frozen seems to have meant that Russia had sent it abroad, outside of its control. It looks like, at least as of last June, all Russian gold was kept in Russia itself. At the same time, it would have been natural to have kept security and bank deposits in the United States and Britain because that is where most intervention in world foreign exchange markets occur, Hudson added. Essentially, it's still up in the air. My first reading assumed that Russia must be doing something smart. If it was smart to move gold abroad, perhaps it was doing what other central banks do, lend it to speculators for an interest payment or fee. Until Russia tells the world where its gold was put and why we can't fathom it, was it the Bank of England even after England confiscated Venezuela's gold? Was it the New York Fed even after the Fed confiscated Afghanistan's reserves? So far, there are no extra clarification either from either of them. Scenarios swirl about in a string of deportations in northern Siberia for national treason. Hudson adds important elements to the puzzle. If the reserves are frozen, why is Russia paying interest on its foreign debt failing, falling due? It can direct the freezer to pay to shift the blame for default. It can talk about Chase Manhattan's freezing of Iran's bank account, from which Iran sought to pay interest on its dollar-dominated debt. It can insist that any payments by NATO countries be settled in advance by physical gold. Or it can land paratroopers on the Bank of England and recover gold, sort of like Goldfinger at Fort Knox. What is important is for Russia to explain what happened and how it was attacked as a warning to other countries. So... 
as a clincher, Hudson could not but wink at Glaziev. Maybe Russia should appoint a non-pro-Westerner at the central bank. I mean, you know, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing that Russia is in an economic predicament and it can't explain to the public why, maybe because Russia's economy is still very much dominated by Western finance. That was the post-Soviet arrangement. That was what led to the catastrophe that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so we have to also understand that while Russia's economy had a lot of sovereign aspects to it and to the credit of United Russia and Vladimir Putin, there were moves to ensure that the worst excesses of the oligarchic control of the economy and the wholesale just uh, theft of assets was stopped. It looks like there were still there's still problems and that is what capitalism does that's why that's the difference between china and most of the world right most of the world unfortunately in some respect whether it is a neo-colonial arrangement whether it is this kind of situation that russia is in where it's a multipolar rising power but still caught in between regardless capitalism has its problems and it seems like russia we don't know but Michael Hudson really makes the case, and maybe I should have him on the program, makes the case that there's a whole lot of things that could have happened, and maybe it was lending it out to speculators for interest. Maybe it was moving the gold abroad, abroad because that's just that was just a more convenient thing to do, cheaper, more return. It's hard to say. So we'll see. Maybe it'll come out later. So it's tempting to read into Russian Foreign Ministry Sergei Lavrov's word at the diplomatic summit in uh, Antalya last Thursday as a veiled admission that Moscow may not have been totally prepared for the heavy financial artillery deployed by the Americans. We will solve the problem and the solution will be to no longer depend on our Western partners, be its governments or companies that are acting as tools of Western political aggression against Russia instead of pursuing the interests of their businesses. We will make sure that we never again find ourselves in a similar situation and that neither some Uncle Sam or anybody else can make decisions aimed at destroying our economy. We will find a way to eliminate this dependence. We should have done it long ago. Some so long ago starts now, and one of its planks will be the Eurasian financial system. Meanwhile, the market, as in the American speculative casino, has judged, according to self-made oracles, that Russia's gold reserves, the ones that stayed in Russia, cannot support the ruble. That's not the issue on several levels. The self-made oracles brainwashed for decades believe that the hegemon dictates what the market does. That's mere propaganda. The crucial fact is that in the new emerging paradigm, NATO nations amount to, at best, 15% of the world's population. Russia won't be forced to practice autarky because it does not need to. Most of the world, as we've seen represented in the hefty non-sanctioning nation list, is ready to do business with Moscow. Iran has shown how to do it. Persian Gulf traders confirmed to the cradle that Iran is selling no less than 3 million barrels of oil a day now with no sign with no sign to JPCOA. Oil is relabeled, smuggled, and transferred from tankers in the dead of night. Another example is the Indian Oil Corporation, a huge refiner, just brought bought 3 million barrels of Russian urals from trader Vit, uh, Vital for delivery in May. There are no sanctions on Russian oil, at least not yet. So there you go. You know, you have this 
development, right? Where countries are saying that they're going to keep trading with Russia. Washington's reductionist McKinderisk plan to manipulate Ukraine as a disposable pawn to go scorched earth on Russia and then hit China. So essentially a divide and rule to smash not only one, not one, but two peers in Eurasia who are advancing in lockstep as comprehensive strategic partners. As Hudson sees it, China is, the cross, is in the crosshairs. And what happened to Russia is a dress rehearsal for what can happen to China. Best to break sooner than later under these conditions because the leverage is highest now. All the blather about crashing Russian markets, ending foreign investment, destroying the ruble, a full trade embargo, expelling Russia from the community of nations, and so forth. That's for the zombified galleries. Iran has been dealing with the same thing for decades and has survived. For four decades and has survived. Historical poetic justice, as Lavard intimated, now happens to rule that Russia and Iran are about to sign a very important agreement, which may likely be an equivalent to the Iran-China strategic partnership. The three main knowns of Eurasia integration are perfecting their interaction on the go, and sooner rather than later, maybe utilizing a new independent monetary and financial system. But there's more poetic justice on the way, revolving around the ultimate game changer, and it could come sooner than we all thought. Saudi Arabia is, accept, is considering accepting Chinese yuan, not U.S. dollars, for selling oil China. Translation, Beijing told Riyadh, this is the new groove. The end of the petrodollar is at hand, and that is the certified nail in the coffin of the indispensable hegemon. Meanwhile, there's a mystery to be solved. Where is that frozen Russian gold? So... I mean, that's just a very good article. I think I reached 200 viewers just re a, a while ago, but I'm not going to even get into that. Just keep liking the stream. Keep subscribing to the channel. Keep supporting the work. Patreon.com slash Danny But that was a very good article. That article, essentially, from Pepe Escobar, lays it all out. Russia is not going to be isolated in the way that Washington thinks it is. This is the problem with U.S. imperialist hegemony. The U.S. really does think that it is the ruler of the world, that it rules the world and dominates the world and anything that it says goes. And that's just not the case anymore. The multipolar world is here. And that has huge economic ramifications, as he laid out so eloquently and so briefly and so concisely. The whole idea of isolating Russia, this huge country, huge energy producer, is even more ridiculous than even trying to isolate an Iran, right? Which is a smaller country, but resource rich nonetheless. And there's another element to this that Pepe Escobar doesn't generally talk about, and that is political will and struggle. That is the class struggle, because everything we're talking about with imperialism, the dollar, all of it leads to a class struggle. And if you understand Lenin, you understand the theory of imperialism and understand what imperialism is, under the stage of imperialism, the struggle between nations becomes a class struggle. And that is where we're at. And so this class struggle is intensifying. And these countries that are being targeted by imperialism are building and developing stronger and stronger relationships because one, first of all, that is just beneficial to them because the US and Europe are certainly not offering handsome deals even just at the economic realm, right? Not even at the core kind of uh, 
baseline economic realm, there's not anything really incredible coming down the road for the global south as a whole for underdeveloped countries and countries with experiences of colonialism and underdevelopment. So there's that fact, right? That's just independent of militarism. But then you add the bullyism, the sanctions, the hegemonism, you add that into the equation and it, it just accelerates everything. And so this is very characteristic of imperialism. Imperialism is built on these kind of contradictions, right? It, it the more it grows in attempts to assert dominance, actually, the more it digs its own grave. So it'll be really interesting to see how things develop here, because this monetary system created by the Eurasian Economic Union could certainly bring just, I think, a whole lot of flexibility to the world situation. It could give countries, these smaller countries in that region, so much more room to breathe. And of course, with China at the center, China's prominence in the development of Eurasia would only skyrocket. Its influence would only skyrocket, given that it is the most successful, it is the most highly developed, it is the uh, most stable of any country in the region and arguably the world, right? This is the high advantage that China has. And so this is a class struggle in the sense that the United States is at war, is in a class war with these countries, and it is bringing that war to a head. It is bringing that war to a very climactic position, which is still developing, right? We still don't know how it's going to play out, but we know that, I said it before, that Russia has opportunities that the United States underestimates and Europe underestimates because they don't want to publicly acknowledge that the deck that they have in their hands is not as solid as they say it is, right? They want to continue to pour out this hegemonism and this arrogance and this hubris and this leadership, right? This idea that they are the leaders and that they have a monopoly on democracy and economic growth and wealth and civilization, quote unquote, right? This racism that's pouring out of Europe and the United States targeting Russia and China requires that there is no admission about decline. You have not heard any admission really about decline. Sure, the United States and Europe will acknowledge that they've got some problems, right? Biden's State of the Union acknowledged a whole lot of problems, but it was not based on this whole idea that the United States is a declining empire, a declining dollar imperialist. That is not ever acknowledged, but yet that is the reality. And I think this Russia-Ukraine conflict is showing us, showing us so clearly that while the world situation has it will is not necessarily going to bring about the replacement of the dollar 
right away, not tomorrow, not next month, not next year. The mechanisms for that are going to be put in place right now, right? So whether it's this monetary system from the Eurasian Economic Union, whether it's continued discussions between Saudi Arabia and China about trading in RMB, regardless of the development, this is going to happen. Whether it's India circumventing sanctions against Russia to trade with Russia, right? These sanctions are going to act as a noose on the United States and Europe in so many more significant ways than just higher gas prices. It is sowing and laying the bedding for the coffin that U.S. imperialism, right? And let's all cross our fingers for this, that U.S. imperialism will eventually lie in. So it is very significant. And we really need to keep abreast of these developments because where the dollar goes is where capitalism goes. Where capitalism goes is where U.S. imperialism as a whole goes. And we will continue to witness this world historic trend of China, of Russia, of the multipolar world rising, right? And circumventing the challenges that the imperialists are placing upon the people of these countries. That is a really good thing. But the suffering will remain. People in Russia are going to suffer from these sanctions. They already are being hurt by them, just as in Venezuela, sanctions have hurt people in Venezuela. And we can go down the line to the more than 30 countries. That is all true. That will continue to be a reality. However, Venezuela has survived. Iran has survived. Syria has survived. These countries will continue to survive because the class struggle of resistance to empire is in fact in full swing. And while the challenges are persistent and they grow because the U.S. does hold this hegemonic position. It's what Mao said. It's what a lot of revolutionaries have said over the years. You know, no matter how how big the weapons, how advanced the technology, you cannot destroy the will of the people. You cannot kill a revolution. These countries are showing that no matter how much aggression that the United States imposes upon the world, that there will be forces, nations, peoples who resist and who win, right? And who win and who win really incredible victories. And that was the theme in the Friends of Socialist China webinar earlier today. And that continues to be a theme into this conversation about the dollar's collapse. It's not something we should cry over. It's not something that we should be sad about. It is something that if allowed to flourish, could bring about immense progress for humanity and immense victories for this class war that people say they're for, but then they end up on certain questions siding with their supposed class enemies, right? They side with the United States and the imperialists over Russia and China and all of the non-aligned countries being targeted by the United States because they don't meet their standards of socialism or something or other like that. And they miss these points. They miss the fact that the world doesn't wait for them. 
So this is also a learning process for us, right? This is, I'll, I'll end the analysis section here. This is a learning process for leftists, for radicals, for revolutionaries in the United States. The fall of the dollar, the decline of the U.S. empire, it's a learning process for us in the sense that we also have to be ready to position ourselves as stewards and actors and revolutionaries in a multipolar world order, meaning that we need to humble ourselves and get behind a struggle for this multipolar world order, which requires us not to be in the lead, right? Because we're not in the lead. We're not going to be the vanguard force of the world revolution in the United States or in Europe. We can be helpful to a, a world of hum of progress and of uh, victories for the class struggle, but we will not be in the lead. We have our own problems to take care of. We have to win here first. We have not done so. We are not close to a position to even play a positive role in this yet. The best that we can do right now is continue to develop our forces, continue to educate our forces, continue to participate in economic, political forms of class struggle that can move things forward, right? Develop the peace movement, develop the anti-imperialist movement, develop the socialist movement, continue to do all that. Do all of that with the mindset that we will be joining a world movement for multipolarity which requires the downfall of the empire to survive and to thrive. I mean, I don't think it requires it to survive, but the point is not just to survive. It is to thrive. It is to build anew. And so that does require the U.S. empire to actually meet the logical conclusions of its contradictions. But if you are an astute analyst of political economy, if you are a Marxist, you understand that there is, a, there is a dialectical relationship between the crises of the system, the sharpening of contradictions, the graveyard that is being dug, and the subjective elements of all of this, the class struggle, the struggle against the ruling class, which requires that struggle to push the imperialists into their grave, meaning it requires us to take and win power. I mean, that is the that is the finality of it that is the only way that this struggle quote unquote ends and even after that as we've learned from the great revolutionaries in china from zhou enlai mao zedong deng xiaoping fidel castro all the way to comrade dilma rousseff who presented at our webinar even then you have to deal with the contradictions of your society you have to deal with the contradictions that were left for you by capitalism, by imperialism, which means the class struggle continues, which is why you have to maintain vigilance. You have to have a strong state. You have to defend the revolution. You have to build a new out of the old until you get to the phase. This is Marxism 101. You get to the phase of communism where now instead of each according to their work and labor, it can be each according to their need. I mean, this is this is kind of all what comes to fruition and comes up as we talk about the fall of the dollar and the 
end of imperialism's dollar dominance. So we have to be on board with this multipolar world. We need to pay attention to the dollar's demise. We need to pay attention to these diplomatic talks between China and the United States because they tell us a lot about the global situation. They tell us a lot about China and China's directness, China's ability to be a leader, to actually uh, follow an outcomes-based political model, which not, doesn't just talk the talk, but walks the walk versus the United States, which merely squawks the squawk, but really just box and box. It doesn't do nothing, right? It doesn't do any, It doesn't do anything except what it is designed to do, which it would never put out on a diplomatic roll call on a readout would never say, yeah, the United States is designed to wage endless war and impose endless austerity. That is the reality that the U.S. ruling class continuously evades because that reality would send, of course, masses of people in rebellion once that trust factor, right, that is sown by racism and American exceptionalism and all the propaganda, that trust that is developed that has waned and died, but it's holding on by a thread. And that thread mainly stays attached and stays firm because the propaganda blitz is so tough and because there is this advantage of if you can get people desperate enough, they won't even be able to hear or access truth. And then you have, of course, the censorship apparatus and all of this that's going on that creates this perfect storm of confusion and division and misunderstanding and ignorance, a, a, a profound ignorance of everything from geography to history, right? We live in a profoundly ignorant society, one that is deprived of just standard information that most people in the world, especially in places like China and Cuba, I mean, you just walk the streets and you meet a historian because people there are not deprived and these countries are not deprived of their history. They're not deprived of an understanding of how their societies develop and how their society is positioned in the world. But the United States, that's deprived of all people across the class order, but especially among workers and oppressed people who really do need that knowledge to arm themselves in the uh, revolutionary and radical movement. Because without political education, there is no movement. Without theory, there is no movement, right? That's what Lenin said. There's no revolutionary movement without revolutionary theory. It's why the greatest revolutionaries, even in the United States, from Mumia Abu-Jamal, George Jackson, Asada Shakur, Claudia Jones, who arguably wasn't necessarily a U.S.-based activist, but she did live here before being deported back to uh, England. Uh, all of these incredible revolutionary figures, Paul Robeson, right, they had an immense amount of class consciousness, an immense understanding of world affairs, right? Uh, they understood their history and their role in it. And so, I mean, that's kind of the task numero uno. That's like what we got to do now. That's where we've got to go. And it may not seem like a lot, but the more that we do that and the more that we get involved in the realm of politics and class struggle, the better off 
we will all be in the short, medium, and long term. But with that said, like the stream, subscribe to the channel. I did get to reach 200 viewers here. That's amazing. Thanks so much. Subscribe to the channel, hit the notifications bell, and the best way to support this, because YouTube takes a lot. I mean, Patreon takes a lot, but this is the best way to support the channel. I'm trying to, I'm close to being able to get support and be able to, uh, you know, throw some money because people do, do not like using people's labor without some compensation. Uh, you can support all this work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. As we grow, as this channel grows, as my work grows, you know, weekly, weekly columns you'll get, you'll get a PDF of my book there. You know, I write weekly. I do these streams pretty regularly now. I'm considering an alternative platform to just get things in a more safe location. And so with that says a lot, I'm doing a lot right now. You know, I, I'm part of Friends of Socialist China. And so, you know, I have a lot of plans for the channel and for this work upcoming. And so, yeah, definitely support it at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Also, while you're here, a lot of people do this. All the channels who are on the app do this. I'm a part of the Colin app. I do a podcast there called Cold War Brew. It's actually tomorrow at 1130 a.m. Eastern time in the description where you can find the Patreon and the Substack where you can support this work financially you can download this app I, the down I'm, I, the link is to the show but if you do it on a computer you won't be able to participate live so go to your phone google play or whatever apple app store whatever download the Colin app and look for cold war brew that you can reference in the link below Subscribe there. Tomorrow I'll be on at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. I'm on every Sunday for about 45 minutes usually. You can participate live. We can talk. We can chat. It's great. It's a great opportunity to sort of have more, a little bit more engagement than this, than a more podcast setting. I, I really do enjoy doing that podcast. I just kind of go based on what I'm thinking about, what I've been reading, it's all about the Cold War, new Cold War. And, you know, me, I I don't just silo these issues. So I'm talking about everything. I talked about censorship last week. The first week was a introduction to the new Cold War. And we're gonna I'm gonna be doing more of these kind of explainers for this podcast. And then I usually leave the second half after about 20 minutes, the second half for conversation. So definitely do that. You know, because I'll be on tomorrow at 1130 a.m. Eastern. And I know a lot of the YouTubers out here, like Katie Halper and others, uh, they do it right after their show. That's never going to be an option for me. <laughs> I'm never going to come right off this YouTube and go straight to Colin. Mm -mm, that's just way too much. So uh, see me tomorrow morning instead, 1130 a.m. Eastern time. So with that said, you know, I think it's a good time, a good place to to be in concluding this stream but like the stream subscribe to the channel before you go hit the notifications bell to continue to get notified when i come on i probably won't be on again until next week got a couple days off i want to spend with my wife and after that 
I think I might try to get on midweek next week. I'll let you know. Um, I, I also am trying to set up a few interviews and stuff. So to get some, you know, more engagement here. So I'll let you know. Um, no, but I do have a column that's come out about Russia's perspective on the Ukraine crisis. I do. I will have an original column on Black Agenda Report coming out as well. I think I'm supposed to appear on Revolutionary Blackout Network Monday night. I'm talking about China with Kareem, who's really knowledgeable in Hong Kong. I hope he's safe because Hong Kong is now just rife with COVID-19. It's really unfortunate. But that's that's kind of the movement. Um, yeah, a lot coming up. And, you know, you can support this work, support all of it, you know, the hours. I mean, I am putting in a lot of work. I'm taking advantage of this time that I have to take a break from full-time, just nine to five work that I've done most of, I mean, all of my adult life and even prior, right, to build up a foundation for my own anti-imperialist journalism. And then, you know, once I have that in place and I can be sustainable, then also intensify the work in unifying and building bridges among independent media. So it is more of a movement arm. That's kind of my hope. Along with traveling, I need to get out of the United States, not just for my own personal benefit, because it's not, I'm not thinking like that. I'm thinking I need to do more reporting on the ground. I need to go, I have built so many connections in China. I need to take advantage of those to get you and everyone else who needs it, the information from there and to really build those bonds because if this russia ukraine crisis is an indication we need more solidarity right now we need to develop that understanding that empathy that in and of itself i think is a monumental project that has a lot of significance and benefits so you can support that aim in those and all the projects involved in it which includes Friends of Socialist China and includes my columns and includes my streams at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong, $1 a month, $5 a month, whatever you can give. That is where uh, I'm going. And I it's been, it's been really great. You all have been so supportive. It's been humbling. I've been able to grow relatively fast in all areas and uh, it feels good that the work is appreciated and I feel like it does reach people and if I feel like it's effective and I feel like my approach which is different you won't see me out here railing on other people just because I disagree with them I'm not here to badmouth anybody to trash anybody I've had my share of bad experiences from the podcaster world, the media, independent media world, to the activist realm. I even just had one recently. But I don't go around bad-mouthing because we're just not in the position to do that, nor do I ever think we would be. But even like open public criticism of each other, it tends to be very counterproductive. It tends to only serve like clickbait and other kinds of trends which are just not me, never will be me. I mean, I will, of course, experiment with algorithms and stuff because you got to just to get seen. And I have been doing a little bit of that, even though it's quite 
clear that this work that I do on this is suppressed in a lot of ways. And I know that from demonetization and all of that, but I will never do that at the personal level with people who are supposed to be, even if they don't always meet my expectations or expectations maybe that I think everyone should have for the movement, even if they don't meet them, I'm not going to be out here bad mouthing them in public because that it, it ends up being the only way that this grows for people. But then you just end up with a lot of this toxicity. And I'm not talking about like, okay, let's pound on the Dems, right? The Democrats. No, no, no. We can do that. Sure. You can go after the Dems, but then it comes in the realm of, okay, people who are left of Democrat, what are we doing? And of course, there's a fine line because I know that there's all this and I'll end it here. There's all this talk about MPP and all this stuff. And I know, you know, that just never was my movement anyway. But I get when you do need to speak up, then you do need to speak up about things. So there's a judgment call there. But my my style, my overall orientation is we keep it to the politics. There's just so much work to do that I feel like personalizing things, going after people is really counterproductive. So, uh, when, you know, I'm not talking about Clintons here or even like the whatever, Sam Cedars or Chank Ugers of the world or Anna Kasparians. Uh, they're ripe for the thing because they're, I mean, they're liberal imperialists and they, they're corporate sort of fodder, right? They just misinformation arms. And that's, that's one thing. But then there is a milieu of us independent media out here that, you know, we disagree on a lot of things, but we also should come together and, and keep it very principled um, and, and, you know, work together when we can. So somebody posted a really nice super chat, 10 euros. I appreciate that. Uh, hate Patreon. I know. Uh, do you think China and Vietnam will ever let go of our past mistakes and work together towards a better future? So Fluffing Fluff, I love your name. I understand that you hate Patreon. If you don't hate Substack as much, I appreciate the donation. And of course, I think it goes to YouTube because I'm not at the threshold, but appreciate it nonetheless. Uh, I've been trying to direct people to Substack if they don't like Patreon because I don't like the idea of giving YouTube any money. Um, they all take a cut. So I kind of, that's like a wash for me. But um yeah, I, I'm I'm guessing, yeah, I'm not gonna ask you for more to redirect this, but I do think they are getting over their I I mean getting over uh and letting go of past mistakes. I think that's a process, you know. I think that I think that relations are improving between Vietnam and China and they're improving in the right direction. So all in all, I don't think the past errors or developments that occurred in history are going to prevent what is the trend, which is what we talked about, the development of Eurasia, the integration of these countries, the connectivity and solidarity between these countries. Yeah, no, that's going to continue. That is totally going to continue. And, you know, I appreciate the comment. And we have another comrade here. Yeah, learn subs, team Substack, yearly plan, pay once and enjoy. That is true. That is true. So if you do not like Patreon, there's a lot of strong anti-Patreon folks out here. I understand. So before I leave, let me just leave you with this. 
Substack is the way to go, right? It is the best way to support because it is consistent. They pay out relatively frequently, both of these outlets. They allow for YouTube, I feel like even once the monetization $100 threshold is passed, is never going to be really sustainable, like in, in, in a way because of all the censorship, right? My subscriber growth will never be as fast. My um, views will never be enough. And I, I'm not really interested in that. I, I use this as a political vehicle. So yeah, Substack and Patreon. If you don't like Patreon, please Substack. You know, it's 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 less. I think it's less shady. It's still shady, but it's less shady than Patreon. So if you have feelings, I understand. But but those two outlets are the best to support me in my work. So so yeah, Team Substack, yearly plan, pay once and enjoy. Good philosophy there. Um, and then get on Odyssey. That's actually something I'm considering. I'm, I'm trying to get help with that uh, from somebody. So yeah, now there's alternatives humming. There's things happening. It'll come. <laughs> Change can be slow, even though it can also be rapid. So yeah, uh, appreciate all of the support, everybody. Salute to all of you comrades. Again, you know, like the stream before you go. Uh, subscribe to the channel before you go if you haven't yet and um, hit the bell and yeah patreon.com slash Danny Haifong or chronicles of haifong.substack.com all of which are in the description it's how you support this work all right I'm tuning out everyone I'm leaving I'm peacing out good night here from the east coast and the United States and take care bye bye <laughs>